Welcome to Lock Sportscast, your weekly source for Lock Sport News. This is episode 79, recorded December 4th, 2021. I'm your host, Charles Current. In today's episode, first public single pin pick of the UEMA 750, first public pick of the Progress Fontaine BTE Paris 5 wafer. That's a mouthful. LPU charity raffle time again. Thieves steal 43 cars in four days. Nissan security issue, more on Chrysler's security. New products, locksmith story, the Treasury Department's cash vault, criminals, sales, giveaways, and more. You can subscribe to the audio version of the show on most podcast apps and at thelocksportscast.com. If you don't already have one, you can find a podcasting 2.0 compatible app at newpodcastapps.com. You can subscribe to the video version on YouTube or Odyssey. Links to stories discussed will be in the show notes. You can find full show notes with all of the links at thelocksportscast.com. And yet again, another quick reminder that the Locky Awards is coming up, so have your nominations ready. The nomination period starts January 1st. We'll start off the news with a note sent in by Tiger Trav from Australia on an older Nissan security issue. It says, just wanted to drop an article for the show that might be of interest regarding a security issue for early model Nissans, that's 2007 to 2017, that have keyed ignitions. The issue concerns aftermarket keyless entry fobs generated on the KD slash key DIY remote generation system favored by many locksmiths. When the blank KD aftermarket remote is generated for a tilde micro patrol or pulsar, it tunes the remote to the correct frequency for that particular car, but instead of generating a unique ID for the remote, like Mazda or Toyota, the KD system generates the same ID every time. Once that remote is added to the car system through a manual programming procedure, any other remote generated for the same type of vehicle will lock and unlock the car. And I'm guessing that means any other KD remote. And he sent in an article from Australia ABC that I'll go over briefly here. It was titled, Aftermarket Key Fobs Are Cheaper But Open More Doors Than You May Realize. It says, when Sarah replaced a lost car key with an aftermarket alternative, she was unaware of the openings it would present. She was recently in a Carnes car park where she unlocked her pink Nissan Micra using the remote key, which also opened a white Micra nearby. She explained to reporters, I was heading back to my car and it unlocked using the remote. I actually went over to their car and opened their door before I realized that I had pressed the lock on my remote and unlocked their car. Had it been someone else that had come forward and realized that, they might have taken anything out of the car. It's all in the frequencies. She had lost her car keys eight months earlier and replaced them at a local locksmith after considering the dealership alternative too expensive. Automotive locksmith Chris Rose said the aftermarket key was to blame. He said, I've spoken to the suppliers of the device and they've heard of this issue. When we go into the technicalities of the way the device creates remotes, that's when you begin to realize that there are far less permutations. Mr. Rose said, remote car keys relied on emitting frequencies that matched individual vehicles. The Nissan remote has thousands of different frequencies, he said, 
That would mean that the likelihood of a genuine Nissan remote opening more than one car are 1,000 to 1. The aftermarket device that most locksmiths, shoe repair guys, and car accessory shops are using, the number of frequencies is down in the low 10s to 1. Then they have some quotes from some other customers who have realized this problem, and then uh, some talk about insurance claims and the effect that might have. Anyway, interesting article, and it will be in the show notes if you want to check it out. Going back to the Chrysler security issue, the Dodge Chrysler security issue that we had talked about on the last couple of episodes, Jeff Moss sent in a link to an article called Opening the FCA Security Gateway. This kind of explains what's going on with the bypass that I talked about in the last episode and kind of confirms my assumptions about the CAN network, I think. I'll read a few sections of this article here and leave the rest for you to go check out if you're interested. It says, in response to threats of hacking, the automaker made it more difficult for locksmiths to service its vehicles. In July 2015, Wired Magazine published an article entitled, Hackers Remotely Kill a Jeep on the Highway with Me in It. The article described how two hackers gained control over a Jeep Cherokee via the internet. The hackers were able to take over a lot of the vehicle's functions, including the brakes, transmission, steering, wipers, and entertainment system by using a notebook computer. The attack, which was arranged and planned, was carried out 10 miles from the vehicle. However, because it was performed over the internet, it could have been carried out anywhere in the world. The hackers released onto the internet most of the software that allowed them to hijack the vehicle, time to coincide with Black Hat. The hackers had been working with FCA, US, which is Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, for nine months before the release of the software, so FCA could have a software patch available to block this type of attack when the story came out. FCA made the patch available to all customers who wanted it. The patch also was integrated into new vehicles that were manufactured after that date. So it was available to customers who wanted it, but not... Okay, you think it'd be some sort of a, a service bulletin to get it done, but anyway. The main vulnerability of the vehicle was the so-called Uconnect module, which FCA introduced in 2013 and was already on hundreds of thousands of vehicles all over the world. Uconnect module has a built-in cellular connection that runs in the background, and it can also serve as a mobile hotspot. All that hacking software required to attack an individual vehicle was the IP address of the Uconnect module. The hackers also demonstrated the ability to scan for vehicles that use the system and thus are vulnerable to this type of attack. Rather than removing or isolating the vulnerable vehicles, FCA doubled down by adding an elaborate firewall system to their vehicles. The system was called the Security Gateway and allegedly was designed to thwart a remote hacking attack. In reality, FCA added another layer of wireless devices and equipment to their vehicles, which greatly increased the number of places where a vehicle could be vulnerable to future attacks. And FCA applied the you should never let a good crisis go to waste idea here. FCA used this crisis not only to add technology to their vehicles, but also force owners to have to go back to the dealership for any service that even remotely connected to the security system. One of the first things that FCA did was to cut off locksmith's access to Chrysler immobilizer codes, known as SKIM, or Sentry Keyless Immobilizer Module, codes or PIN codes. Denying locksmith's access to these codes, FCA hoped to bring most key duplication and origination back to the dealerships, but that didn't work out quite as FCA had planned. 
Before FCA pulled the plug on PIN codes, the good folks at AE Tool and Computers had been working on ways to pull PIN codes directly from the anti-theft module. The unit called DMAX allowed locksmiths to pull the PIN directly from the vehicle and then add a new key when duplicating a key and in all keys lost situations. On most vehicles, this could be done through the onboard diagnostics port, the OBD port. But on some of the first generation modules, pulling the pin required removing the SKIM and connecting directly to a single chip. The DMAX also allowed a lot of troubleshooting and the ability to rewrite information in cases where a module had been replaced. Before long, software to pull Chrysler pin codes started to appear on many aftermarket programmers. And now the ability to get PIN codes directly from Chrysler isn't an issue, except on vehicles that have first-generation SKMs and vehicles that have SKREEM modules. FCA had made several changes to the computer architecture to try to prevent locksmiths from pulling PIN codes, but each time that it makes a change, someone comes up with a way around the changes. It must have been very frustrating to the engineers at FCA. It probably shouldn't be a surprise that when FCA introduced the security gateway system, it not only attempted to block hacking attempts, but it also worked to block anyone but a dealer from adding or replacing keys. The security gateway isn't a single device or system, but an entirely new level of technology that was added to the CAN bus system. Generally, there are two ways for locksmiths to connect to the security gateway on any of the vehicles equipped with it. Probably the easiest and most common way to do the job is to connect to the CAN high and CAN low circuits by way of their so-called star connector. The star connector is a multi-port connector that might be located almost anywhere in the vehicle. There also might be multiple star connectors located in various places in a vehicle. The security gateway star connectors are always colored green and typically will have several connectors attached to them. You can plug a cable from your programmer in any of the open connections. The basic star connector is used for a lot of other connections in the vehicle wiring, but only the connectors that are part of the security gateway will be green. The other option is to connect your tool directly to the radio frequency hub, which handles many radio frequency operations in the vehicle, including those used by proximity fob systems. The RFH module might be located almost anywhere in the vehicle, but in many cases, it might require a lot of effort to access it. This is why you will most often connect to the star connector. The article goes on to provide a lot of information on where to find connectors or to find information about where to find connectors and a lot of detail, more detail that I left out in uh, in my read here. So if you want to know more about that, you can head over to the locksmith ledger link that I will have in my show notes. So basically, it sounds like I might have been on the right track on my speculation from reading the article last time. They separated into a secure and unsecure side of the CAN network. And unfortunately, if somebody has access to the secure CAN network, physical access, then they can uh, do what they need to do. Evidently, the information is not encoded on the bus in any secure way anyway. Moving on to community news, the mighty Yoima 750 fell pretty hard last week uh, with what appears to be the first public single pin or single wafer pick by Mr. Paradise in his video posted on November 27th titled 
world's one and only first to single pin pick the unpickable Uema 750. And his reaction to the open on that video is just pure gold. Warning, the language is not completely family friendly, but I love the reaction. It's a great feeling, I'm sure, opening that lock that nobody had single pin picked before. I have to admit, I don't really understand Uema well enough to understand his technique, but Artichoke2000 described it as applying tension directly to the sliders to overcome the spring pressure, effectively holding them in place while single slider picking. He also released a second video that shows him picking the lock again, along with a video of him destructively gutting the padlock. Unfortunately, they are not designed to be guttable. And that video is titled UMS 750 Padlock Pick and Gut Defeat Destroyed Cut in Half. Uh, both videos will be linked in the show notes if you want to go check those out. And I do highly recommend it. And also this week, Mr. Black Magic showed off a method of defeating the UMA 750. It appears he originally posted an unlisted proof video of this technique on October 14th, and then the day after Mr. Paradise posted his SPP video, Mr. Blackmagic released a public video called The Unpickable UMA 750 2x6 Sliders Reverse Sidebar and Free Spinning Core Picked and Defeated Teaser. And the current released video has no narration, but the description says, State 1, trying to set two plus opposing slider pairs in the back or front at the same time so that the reverse sidebar can sink in enough that the tension will bind and hold in place. Therefore, a min-max wave profile is used. Angling and bending the tools will change their profile until it matches with the bidding in a certain area close enough. Combined with rotating over the contact point with angled tension, it might be possible to reach that sweet spot where the sidebar will bind and the core is no longer free spinning. State 2, using very precise tension control to release as much tension without dropping sliders, holding the basic shape near the true gate with the tools while gently moving other slide pairs until they are close to the set position with pulsing tension, rocking and jiggling in and decreasing tension. The sidebar might sink a bit lower if the next slider pair is correctly set, holding everything in place while being flexible enough to move elements and having full control about the sidebar behavior is the main difficulty. At some point you might force the sidebar in as the true gate is a V-cut and you can open the lock. And it says the temporary video will be replaced with the full detailed explanation of everything. And so we'll just have to wait for his next video on this one and to get a more depth explanation of his exact method. Following all that news, Joshua Gonzalez sent in a link to a video from OzSecCon 2019 called Defeating the Bowley Forever Lock and UEMA 750 by Mitch Prior Robert. Its description says a detailed overview of the thought, the thought process, research, tool design, and fabrication, and ultimately how the Bowley lock, the Forever lock, and the OMA 750 were defeated. His method of defeating the 750 was shimming from the front of the lock, and that was done on a Euro cylinder model. I'm not sure if that is possible on the padlock or not, and I don't know of anybody who is currently selling. Euro cylinders for the UMA 750. So 
If anybody knows of where some are possibly be purchased in the Euro cylinder format, uh, send it in. Let me know and I can let everybody else know. And Panda Frog put out a video that appears to be the first public pick of the Progress Fontaine BTE Paris 5 wafer tubular style lock. I don't know how much of that is important, but <laughs> that is a long name. Anyway, it's this English 241 video. Uh, this thing is an interesting design, quite unique, and Panda Frog had to make a custom tension wrench to get this one done, but he did. Interesting video to check out. And there was an announcement on the Lockpickers United Discord. It looks like they are getting ready for the Lockpickers United charity raffle. They say December is here, and y'all know what that means. Raffle season has arrived. For those of you unaware of this tradition, every year, the Lockpicking Reddit and the LPU Discord wield their collective power and use locks to raise thousands of dollars for charity. Two years ago, we raised 14584 and last year, we bumped that significantly higher to $37,550. Here's hoping that this year we can hold to a trend of exponential growth. As before, we rely on community to contribute prizes, which don't need to be solely locks or picks. If you would like to help contribute to the prize pool, please message Crack Jeans with the following information. What you would like to contribute, what country you are in, if the winner of the prize is international, are you willing to pay for shipping or not? Is your contribution intended for one pot or multiple pots? Pictures of your contribution are optional, but appreciated. You will not be asked to send your locks to any middleman. Just hang on to them and you will be paired directly with a winner after the drawing. Last year, we had 43 prize pots from over 50 separate contributors. And somehow we've managed to successfully get every prize to every winner without fault. The prize contribution portion of the raffle will run from December 1st to December 31st. And the donation phase will occur during the following month. If you have any further questions, feel free to shoot a message. Contributions will be distributed into a collection of prize pots starting next month. People can enter the raffle by providing proof of donation to one of a list of approved charities. Their donation will be converted into tickets, which can be distributed freely among the prize pots. So if you have any Thing you would like to contribute to the prize pots, please send a message over to Correct Jeans and let them know. Well, in videos this week, other than the wonderful videos of the UMO 750 by uh, Mr. Paradise and Mr. Black Magic, and the first pick by Panda Frog, iFisk sent in a, a link to an article that had a video attached to it, and it's holiday shopping means prime time for package thieves expert advice to keep your delivery safe. And while this could end, a lot of the stuff that was covered today could end up in the criminal section. This one is very specifically a video that I found interesting. Surveillance video from the incident shows a suspect in a red hoodie use, they say a lock pick, but it looks to me like a screwdriver or some sort of bypass tool to open an exterior and interior door at the apartment building in Kipps Bay, once inside, the man grabs a package and takes off. Unfortunately, the video is edited, and I can't tell what the thief is actually doing, but it doesn't look like lockpicking. It looks like he's either got a screwdriver or some sort of bri bypass tool. It's shiny, long end on it. And then he gets in the building. He gets through both doors, and then 
There's several packages laid out there and he goes through and he like picks each one up and then decides on which one he wants to take and stuffs it in his shirt as he leaves. Sounds like they have a serious vulnerability because he was not picking the locks as we would think of picking the locks, whatever he was doing. And in products, we have another video. So this one uh, came out today by Locknoob. New stuff from Sparrows, core trainer, heavy bars, and patch. So if you want to know more about these, you can head over to his video. A link will be in the show notes or just go over to Locknoob's channel. I'm sure everybody knows who he is and you can find out more. So they've got some core trainers. Those are cores with different keyways that you can use in their existing training locks. The patch, take it or leave it. Uh, (laughs) Heavy bars, though, they're extra heavy. So they've had their heavy bars for a while, but these are like heavy, heavy bars. They're even thicker. And they could come in handy for some of those locks with extra wide keylay, keyways like some of the dimple locks. In Lockpickers United belts this week, we have a new brown belt for Free Diver 72 and a new red belt for Gilligans. So congratulations to both of you. Very well done. Moving on to speed locks. Looks like they have new first record for the ASA 600 with barrel spools and matched countermilling by Dromosite in... 1 minute 59.034 seconds and a first record for the Denny Fontaine five pins by HV Logic in 11.311 seconds. Now I'd like to take a quick break, say thank you to the people that made this episode possible. That includes the Patreon subscribers, Panda Frog, Michael Gilchrist, Starry Lock, Williams Brain, Dave to be deciphered, Lebon's Locksport Journey, Pat from Uncensored Tactical, Three Raccoons and a Coat, Cherell, Patty Cakes, Dr. Hogmaster, Clayton Howard, aka Cooltoon, Mog, John Locke, Rat Yoke, Mr. Picker, Cranky Lockpicker, Real Tater, JHP Picking. Chief content producer for this episode was I Fisk again. Other content producers for this episode are Choke 2000, Beanie A to Z, Cherell, Correct Jeans, Dark Arts Lockpicking, Gumby, I Fisk, Jeff Moss, Joshua Gonzalez, Keyless Entry, Michael Gilchrist, Panda Frog, Rubber Band, Starry Lock, Tiger, Trav from Australia, and Tony Varelli. Thank you to all of you for your support. And just remember that this show is only possible because of all that information and support. So if you value the podcast, the number one thing you can do to support it is keep sending in your news, links, events, giveaway information, anything you have that's Locksport related. Everybody has their own little groups that they hide out in in the Locksport community. And you might know something that the other parts of the community don't. So share them with me and I will try to distribute those around. You can send that information to podcast at thelocksportscast.com or any of the other methods listed on thelocksportscast.com slash support. Don't forget to share the podcast with your lockpicking friends. You can leave a review or a comment on your favorite platform. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform form and you can donate via paypal or patreon if you subscribe on patreon i try to get you an episode out the audio episode out about a day early sometime on sunday you can find all the different ways to support the show at the locksportscast.com support if you support the show with a donation or information i can use in the show i will give you credit in the show and in the show notes And quick reminder, I'm looking for any interesting stories people have about their journey in locksporting or things that have happened to them because of their uh, hobby of locksport. So let me know if you have anything you would like to share. You can also share feedback about the show. That can be kept confidential if you like, or I can share it on the show. Your choice. You're welcome to submit 
it as a note, video, or audio recording if you want it put on the show. But just remember to keep it reasonable length, polite, work and family safe, no politics, and no drama. And I just had a quick statement I wanted to make about the state of the podcast. I know there are a lot of things that could be done to make this a better show for everyone, but I just really don't have the time to do them. Please understand that if the show has rough edges and maybe doesn't cover exactly what you want or doesn't have all the features you would like, it's primarily because I just don't have time. I said this before, but for those of you who may be new, I just want to explain why that is. I work a full-time job with mandatory overtime. My work shifts are 12 hours long and alternate between days and nights, sometimes only weekdays, sometimes over the weekends. When I'm working over the weekend especially, I have very limited time to get the show together, recorded, edited, published. I try to keep the news fresh and relevant as far as the community and Locksport news, and that means I have to have a cutoff for when news stories come in and do quick turnaround to get the news out while it's still fresh. In order for me to guarantee any news makes it into the show, I have to have it submitted by Friday afternoon or evening in the Pacific time zone in the U.S. Some news items that appear after that may get covered, but it's not guaranteed. It all depends on my work schedule. Sometimes I have to record after coming home Friday evening. I have to get home, eat dinner, and then immediately start recording so that I can be done in time to go to bed at a reasonable hour so that I can get up at 4 a.m. the next morning. In those cases, I will have to edit the show Saturday, either before or after my shift, in order to have it out on Sunday for patrons and Monday for the rest of you. I've designed my workflow around taking a little time here and there through the week to collect the stories and store them in a database, and then I migrate the stories from the database to an outline that I use for recording the show and uh, all the links into the show notes for the stories that I'm using. All of this has to be done and ready by the time I record either Friday or Saturday. I'll have all my links together in an outline and show notes, and I will load all the links into a browser on my computer. Those are the images that you see in the video, and they are recorded in real time with the picture-in-picture superimposed in real time. There's no real post-production in there just because I don't have time. I edit out the bad takes and keep the good takes and then publish it. And that's really all I have time to do between recording and getting it published. And to be honest, I'm starting to feel a little burned out even with that. It's a lot of work. Several of you have submitted some really great ideas on improvements that could be made. And I wish I had the time and energy to try them, but I just don't. Early on, I tried a lot of things. Uh, You may have noticed that I stopped doing many of them, like the Clips channel, for example. I just don't have time for those extra things. So I apologize, but I'm doing what I can do. I love your suggestions, but please understand if they don't get implemented, if they don't save me time, if they're going to take me more time, they're probably not going to get implemented. Moving on to the locksmith story, I thought we would highlight a good news for a locksmith. This one was titled Local Locksmith Honored with Award for Helping Prevent Domestic Abuse. The Nipissing Violence Against Women Coordinating Committee has recognized Jim's locksmithing with an award in recognition of the company's commitment and dedication to the service of those affected by intimate partner violence in the North Bay area. Jim's is quick to respond 
to calls for service helping victims feel secure in their own homes again. Kathleen Juduin, Executive Director of Victim Services of Nipissing District and a member of the VAWCC, said, It takes collaboration from many in our community to support women and children affected by intimate partner violence. Jim's locksmithing quickly and professionally responds to our calls for service to change locks and help women and their children regain a sense of safety after being victimized. The award was presented to Amber Winters, who has been a manager at Jim's locksmithing for 23 years. She said, it's quite an honor to help certain victims in the area and help them feel safe. Anyway, came across that story and I thought it was worth mentioning. This is another story that I came across on Beanie A to Z's page and it was titled peek inside the treasury department's cash vault evidently renovators at the treasury building made an unexpected discovery in 1985 behind the walls in the old office of the treasurer they had stumbled upon the forgotten armored vault that used to guard the government's cash the vault was designed in 1864 by isaiah rogers and employed a creative burglar-proof design, they say. A double layer of large ball bearings were sandwiched between a metal housing. The theory was that an attacking drillbit would just penetrate one layer and get caught in the spinning balls, but in any case, a group of 20 guards used to guard the space to ensure that it never came to that, and frankly, that is the best security, having multiple guards They not only keep an eye on the safe so nobody can get in, but they keep an eye on each other so nobody, hopefully, turns bad. According to the article, by 1881, the vault was crammed with $1 billion in securities and $500 million in bonds and several million in gold and silver coins. In addition to gold and silver, the vault used to hold many other strange things, including paintings, prints, photographs, furniture, decorative arts, sculpture, and architectural fragments. A female journalist named Emily Edson Briggs got a look inside the eighth vault in 1870 and reported on discovering several forgotten items that included a bottle of rose oil sent to Martin Van Buren by an Indian prince, hundreds of jewels, a snuff box, counterfeit coins and dyes, and a hoard of Confederate currency. By 1897, the vault had fallen into disrepair and a congressional inquiry blasted it as a disgrace to the government and of such obsolete character and inferiority of construction and minimums of security as would cause them to be rejected as unfit for use by any country bank in a backwoods town. The report said that the Treasury Guards were the vault's most effective defense, and that's always should be the case, but anyway. The vault was replaced by a larger cash room in 1909, and in 1935 all the government's gold and silver reserved were removed because of the uh, orders at the time to take all the gold deposits away from major cities that might be attacked by the enemies in the lead up to World War II, I would assume. Interesting article with some good pictures of the vault, so you should uh, head over and check that out. And while you're at it, check out B&E A Disease Instagram and his Twitter. Wonderful stuff. Whenever I have time, that's where I go to find out interesting information lately. Moving on to other criminal news, we have teen who fired shots crashed into building is facing multiple charges. 
18, who police said fired shots at someone in another vehicle and then crashed into a building last Thursday, is facing multiple charges. The teen was charged with theft of property, aggravated assault, and reckless endangerment. He also suffered serious injuries when the vehicle he was driving ran into C&W Cafe. Police say he was driving a stolen vehicle, and the other person in the car was not injured. The teen and the other suspect had been arrested on September 26th after getting out of a black Nissan Ultima at the Grove Street Market that had been taken in an earlier carjacking. Both defendants ran when they were told to stop by police. They were apprehended after a foot pursuit. Inside the vehicle, police found two firearms, two digital scales with marijuana residue, and a lockpicking kit that police said is used to steal cars. Teen acknowledged buying one of the guns illegally and said he kept it for protection. He also said he used marijuana, though he is underage to do so. At the time, he was on bond for aggravated assault and reckless endangerment. The other suspect had prior felonies of theft of property and having contraband in a penal institution. His driver license had been revoked. He was seen getting out of the driver's side and the teen out of the passenger's side. The article is worded up above to implicate that the teen was driving, so poorly worded article, maybe. The next article is man arraigned on burglary charges allegedly confessed to helping man steal cash, coins, and jewels. It says a Holidaysburg man was arraigned Monday on burglary charges related to an incident in 2019, according to Blair County Court documents. The suspect allegedly confessed to helping another man steal more than $1,000 in coins, $2,000 in cash, and several high-value jewelry items from a brush-run apartment in Allegheny Township in June 2019. The apartment complex owner contacted police June 23, 2019 after discovering his office was unlocked, items and money were missing, and a set of lock-picking tools was left behind, according to the court documents. If you're going to use lockpicks to break in somewhere, you should probably take them back with you. Police noted the owner said the coins were from the apartment's coin-operated laundry facility and the keys to those machines were also taken. An apartment resident told the owner a key pick tool was also found near the office area. In July 2018, the suspect allegedly confessed that he helped carry a bag of coins out of the Brush Run Apartments office and the two stole a key ring, a Rolex watch, a high-end lady's watch, and multiple rings from the office. He was charged with burglary, criminal conspiracy, theft, and criminal trespass in March of 2020. The other suspect confessed a few days later, telling police he found them a ride after the incident, and they went to a Super 8 motel for the evening after securing, after securing the stolen items. The apartment owner replaced the laundry machine locks, and he requested $16,700 in restitution. Leave all the evidence behind. If you break in, you steal a bunch of stuff, and then leave your lockpicking tools behind. I wonder what other evidence they were stupid enough to leave behind. The next story is out of Fredrickson, Washington. So it was titled, Thieves Steal 43 Cars in Four-Day Period in Pierce County. The article says that car thefts continue to plague Pierce County, this past holiday weekend, officials reported that more than 40 cars were stolen in just four days. These thefts are impacting much of Pierce County. In October, nearly 800 cars were reported stolen. Sergeant Darren Moss with the P 
Pierce County Sheriff's Department says a big reason for the thefts are new restrictions that are in place. Under new police reform laws in Washington, police and deputies are not allowed to chase a suspect if the only crime committed is car theft. Another issue affecting car theft numbers is COVID restrictions. Moss says that if a suspect is charged with car theft and no other serious crimes, they will not stay in jail due to the current COVID policies. Says it's frustrating. It's frustrating for our deputies. It's frustrating for other agencies. We want to be able to take people to jail. We want to stop the crimes from continuing to happen. The article goes on to say that over the four-day Thanksgiving weekend, 43 cars were reported stolen in Pierce County. 19 of those cars are from one location, the Advantage Auto Direct car lot in Fredrickson. The operations manager of Advantage Auto Direct said, we're looking at probably just in tow bills and locksmith, $10,000 on top of the cost to repair the vehicles or write off the ones that we don't get back. They say some of the stolen cars have been found in return to the dealership, but there are still several vehicles missing. So be extra alert if you live in Washington and if you, especially if you own any of the vehicles that we know have vulnerabilities. Moving on to sales, now that the bulk of the Black Friday sales have all expired, what remains? Actually, several. We have Rubber Band just posted that new coupon code for the holidays is live at his store, hooligankeys.com. The code MAKE2022 BETTER is good for 15% off through January. Any order over $50 gets a free sticker added to their order. There's some newer sets and updated 222343 blanks, new pinning trays, and other goodies. So head over to hooligankeys.com to check that out. And over at Peterson Locksmith Tools, they still have one code that is good through December 20th. That code is good for 15% off uh, purchase, I believe, of $50 or more. The code is Juliet Kilo 4 Papa 26 Zulu 1675, and that expires December 20th. They also still have their closeout on their hydrometer picks. They don't have many left, it looks like. A lot of them uh, appear to be gone. But they do still have some left, and the code may work on those or may not. I don't know. Over at Southord, they're still having their annual Christmas sale, 25% off discount on all products with the code SANTA25. That expires December 21st. Over at Dark Arts Lockpicking, 20% off with the code GRINCHMAS21. That expires the 31st of December. That's at dlp.com. Dot AU. I don't know the expiration on this, but it worked when I tested it earlier today. So Red Team Tools, 11% off all items in inventory with the code Happy Holidays. KeyDecoder.eu, discounted prices on the website through the end of 2021. Masterlock has some of their stuff at 50% off on closeout. And don't know how long it lasts, probably till the inventory runs out. So... If you want some Master Lock stuff, there's one way to get it. Matt's Lockpick. They have their lockpicks on sale, and I don't know when that sale is going to end, but it still says it's on sale as of today. 3DLockSport.com. 10% off with the code LSCAST10, as in LockSportsCast10. LSCAST10. Head over there and check out his stuff. Tony makes some nice 3D printed Stuff for Locksport. Makealocks.com, 15% off with the code BUYMAKO. I have no idea how long that's going to run. 
I didn't even bother to check it today because it's good every time I've checked it. UKLockpickers.co.uk. 10% off with the code GIFT. No news on expirations. So just keep trying it. It seems to work. Moving on to giveaways. Lockmania's Christmas giveaway has started. Rules are a little easier this year. You have to be 18 or over. Watch the first video of the picking videos and make a comment on that video with the words, I want in. And he says in the description, also feel free to share this video and the whole Christmas series so more people can enjoy it. So that's my permission to share it here. And that was uh, shared to me by a couple of people in the community. So thank you for that. Panda Frog is running a giveaway with the speedlocks.org Loco Month contest. He will pick random entry from the people that enter the TSA speed pick or the TSA lock speed pick at speedlocks.org for the Loco Month in the month of December. So enter that contest and you could be a winner of some extra prizes from Panda Frog. CLK Supplies does their weekly hashtag LockBoss giveaway. So if you're into giveaways, that is a good one to get into because you have a chance to win every week. All you got to do is comment on their stuff with the hashtag LockBoss. Remember, the show needs your support. So send me any information you have that's LockSport related. Anything at all, doesn't matter if it's big or small, send it in. I will filter it out throughout the week and add what I can to the timeline. I really, really appreciate all the support. Uh, If you can, please send in information. The more information you send, the less time it actually takes me to prepare and record the show. So it really helps keep me motivated. Thank you and keep it legal.